This morning we're going to be talking about the um, Sermon on the Mount and specifically the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bible available, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. So I get everything ready here. So Matthew chapter 5. Before I jump into that, though, um, I want to talk about this word, blessed, or blessing. Uh, it's something that we hear often, or we might say often. Um, we sing it, right? God bless America. And I think when we hear this word, blessed, or blessing, um, we have a certain picture in our mind of what that means, and maybe what that means in the lives of others or what that means in our own lives. Uh, something very popular that people will say is count your blessings. Basically, think about all of the good things that God has given you. So blessings. Um, first of all, the word blessed, when translated from the Greek, means happy or to be envied. So when you look at somebody and you see God's blessing in their life, you look at them and say, wow, God has really done a lot for that person there to be, and not in like the negative sense of envy, like you want to hurt them in some way to get all their stuff, but to be envied that God has blessed them. Also in the Greek, blessing means receiving God's provisions. Bless you to the person sneezing. Perfect application. That was not planned, so you know. People use this word blessed and blessing all the time. You know, God, maybe somebody say, God has blessed you with a good family. God has blessed you with a good spouse. God has blessed you with healthy and happy kids. God has blessed you with a nice home. God has blessed you with a good job. God has blessed you with health. And if somebody is struggling at their job, or they don't have a job, or if somebody is struggling with their health, or if somebody's kids are just out of control or struggling in some way, we pray that God would bless them. And what we're saying when we say that is that we pray that God will turn their situation around. This word blessing. And when you look at scripture, yes, blessing in a way means that. God's good provisions in your life. But then when I read Matthew chapter 5 on the Beatitudes, it seems like God or Jesus is saying something completely different than what we understand blessing to be. So Matthew chapter 5, looking down at verse 3. Blessed, and I don't, it's not going to come up on the screen because if uh, you haven't heard the Beatitudes, uh, you probably been living under a rock because it's like the beginning of the most important and pivotal sermon ever. Sorry if you haven't heard the Beatitudes. I don't mean to offend you in any way. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If somebody is being talked negatively about, being persecuted physically or emotionally or verbally, would you look at that person and say, man, God has blessed you? That person would be completely offended. But in actuality, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, why would Jesus say that when you are mourning, when you are meek, when you are poor in spirit, when you are persecuted, when you're talked bad about, why would that person be considered blessed in the eyes of Jesus? So hopefully this morning um, we'll dig into that a little bit. Now I have to admit, Tim um, said to me for this Sunday, you can pick any passage you want. So I said, I think I want to teach on the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Beatitudes. And I thought, I even said to Tim this week on Wednesday, the outline is already created for me. It's, you know, very systematic. And as I started studying into this, there are entire books, entire commentaries. John Piper did a sermon, like a six or seven week sermon series on the Beatitudes. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I could just do justice to this in a half an hour. Um, no, that's not the case. This morning, Carrie, uh, actually it was probably last night, she's asking me, actually no, it was this morning, seven o'clock I set my alarm for, and she said, oh, you're just practicing your sermon? And I said, nope, I'm still working on it. Um, <laughs> there you go. This is a work in progress. My grandmother, she was a painter, and my parents would display her artwork in their house, and when my grandmother would come to visit, she would bring her paint and brushes And a painting would be on the wall in their house, and she would keep working on it. It was never finished. And I kind of feel like that's what this sermon is this morning. I think I've just started to scratch the surface. I need a couple more weeks um, to dig into this. So that's kind of what you're getting uh, this morning, uh, because there are so many directions to go with this. There's so much depth in these words um, that there is no possible way I can do it justice this morning. But I do feel that God has started to reveal some things that I hope are a benefit to us. So Jesus begins by saying, actually before I jump in, um, let me pray one more time. Lord, we, we're coming before your word right now. And I'm coming before your word um, with our congregation, our family, brothers and sisters uh, sitting here, many coming in this morning wanting to hear from you. Um, Lord, and that's why the Bible says that not many of us should desire to be teachers. Um, Lord, because when we gather um, and somebody's up here teaching, um, Lord, we're representing your word, and that 
holds a lot of weight. Um, Lord, and the fact that this morning at 7 o'clock, I'm still trying to figure out this sermon and still digging into this passage um, is a little bit nerve-wracking because I stand up here hoping um, to reveal you through your word um, to all of us that need to hear from you. Um, Lord, so this morning, um, I, I pray that you will speak what you want to speak. Um, and it's kind of ironic that this passage talks about weakness and emptiness and thirsting. And I stand up here this morning um, feeling like that in many ways. And that's a good thing, um, Lord, because then that means that you can communicate. That you, you spoke these words, you know these words, you have them figured out, and you know exactly what you want to say to the lives and the hearts and the minds uh, of all of us. Lord, so I pray that you bless us this morning through this passage. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So Jesus begins Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to quickly talk about verse 3, 4, and 5, and then kind of dive in a little deeper about how all of these come together. So if it seems like I'm jumping quickly through some of these, it's because I'm trying to get to a more overarching point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this word poor in the Greek means destitute or spiritually poor. And then this word spirit uh, is a word pneuma. Have you heard of the word pneuma before? What what does that mean in the Greek? It's kind of a popular Greek word. Pneuma. Breath. So spirit, breath, it's what keeps us alive. It's what we live off of. And Jesus is saying here, blessed are the destitute that can barely breathe. Blessed are the spiritually impoverished. Blessed are the destitute. Blessed are those that are barely hanging on. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I just get this picture of somebody gasping for air. They can't can't make it. Life is too hard. They are struggling. The weight is too intense. And Jesus is saying, you who can barely hold on, you're gasping for spiritual air, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So I think about the scriptural example from Luke. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified. 
Jesus is constantly doing this. The woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, this man, not even wanting to approach the temple, but beating his breast saying, God, I am a sinner. I can't even come into your presence. You have the Pharisee, seemingly spiritually strong, the elite, following the law. People look at him and say, he is perfect. He is a teacher. He is blessed by God. And then you have this tax collector, seemingly spiritually poor, that's looked down upon, despised, and outcast. And Jesus is saying, that man is blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Another example from Scripture, Luke chapter 7. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, So you get that picture, like she won't even come around to the front of Jesus. She won't even stand before Jesus. Like Corey was talking about being on our knees and our face on the pavement. That was this woman. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and she began to wet his feet with tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Why is she weeping? Because in the presence of Jesus, she sees who she is. And she sees who he is. And the discrepancy there. And she mourns over her sin. If we were in the presence of Jesus, how do you think we would interact with him? This woman whose sin was so great, and she was looked upon so poorly by society, is at his feet weeping over her, over her sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Then blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So meekness isn't weakness. It's completely different. Weakness is seemingly weak, but inwardly strong. Meekness is patient and hopeful endurance. Meekness is the power to fight back, but showing restraint. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then Mark 15, verse 3. The chief priest accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? Jesus, aren't you going to defend yourself? Listen to all these things they're saying about you. Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are saying about you, Pilate said. But Jesus still made no reply. And then I love this. And Pilate was amazed. Here's a man with all of the power in the universe. This guy calmed the storms. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. The blind saw, the lame walked. Pilate knew this stuff about Jesus. And here he is before Pilate, accused falsely with the ability to defend himself. And he stays silent. That's not weakness, that is meekness. Inwardly strong, 
those outwardly seeming so weak. And as he hang there on the cross, the ultimate form of weakness, that was actually the strongest act that he could have done. So meekness isn't, let me lay down and let people trample over me, or I'm really weak, or you know what, this is just my situation and I have to deal with it. Meekness is, I have the power to defend myself. I have the power to gain ground on my own account, but I'm going to restrain that. And I love that Jesus says they will inherit the earth. Because oftentimes we try to defend ourselves because we want to gain some ground that we're losing. Right? I um, oftentimes, uh, and it's especially one situation, I was at a wedding and I've, I've photographed about 300 weddings. I feel like I know what I'm doing. Um, and this isn't really a good example of weak, meekness because now I'm explaining it to you. So like it kind of discredits it. But I had this guy come up to me as I'm taking these photos. He's like, why are you taking the photo there? That's terrible light. I'm a photographer. I know what I'm doing. You should take a photo over there. And I just listened and I nodded. I was like, oh, what camera do you have? Uh, I just mostly use my iPhone. I don't own a camera. And I just wanted to be like, dude, check out my website. I know what I'm doing, all right? And I was just like, oh, that's great. I, I, you know, and just sat there reserved and restrained rather than just saying, dude, I know what I'm doing. Can you just please back off? He was hurting my pride. He was coming at me. He was questioning my choices in front of the bride and groom. And in my pride, I want to gain that back. And say, no, you know what? I know what I'm doing. I'm a professional. Here, look at my work. Please don't judge me. And so Jesus does say, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The people that are seemingly losing everything are the ones that are actually gaining everything in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says here, these first three, blessed are the spiritually impoverished. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. And if you're like me, I mean, do you look at this and say, how are these people blessed? When you read the Beatitudes, who else thinks the Beatitudes are somewhat confusing? Okay, good. You all should have been with me when I was studying because I was super confused all week. I could have used you. Jesus is saying all of this stuff. And as I'm studying and as I'm praying, I was, I was really confused by this passage, and I always have been. And so I thought to myself, you know what? Sometimes when you're confused, you have to look at the passage in context. So I went back to Matthew chapter 4, and I started reading. And I thought to myself, what happened prior to this? Because a lot of us will start at the Sermon on the Mount and start reading forward. But what's going on right before this? We notice in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus, that it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. So there is a crowd before Jesus. It's easy for us sometimes to take scripture and isolate it and say, okay, and this is how I approached this sermon at first. I took the Beatitudes, I isolated them, and I said, okay, what are they saying? How does it apply to my life? But when I read verse one, I have to realize that this happened at a place, and in time, this was a real event. And Jesus wasn't speaking to one person or just writing down his thoughts. He was speaking to a crowd, a very large crowd. And Matthew chapter 4 gives us an idea of the makeup of this crowd. 
So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew 4, verse 23. So Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds. So this means that the majority of these people, and we don't know how many people were there, the majority of these people were just healed from sickness, disease, suffering from severe pain, having seizures, paralysis, demon possession. This is the crowd that he's speaking to. A bunch of people that knew pain. They knew their sin. And mainly, a bunch of people that were cast aside, that were outcasts, that were forgotten. And Jesus says to them, looking at this crowd, okay? So, yes, he might be speaking to us today, but just picture yourself there in front of this crowd. And he says, looking at them, Blessed are the spiritually destitute. And the people in this crowd are going, oh, that's me. He's speaking to me. And he says to that person, yours is the kingdom of heaven. They must have been like, what? What? I've never heard that before. And then he says, blessed, looking at this crowd, are those that mourn. And this crowd, I'm sure, with demon possession and paralysis and seizures and pain and disease and suffering, had a lot of mourning in their lives. And he says to them, you will be comforted. Then he says to this crowd, blessed are those that are meek. And the people in the crowd are looking at themselves going, and that's me. I never can get ahead. I'm always last. I'm always restraining myself when I'm being talked bad against. And he says to those people, you will inherit the earth. He's speaking directly to an audience. What can happen sometimes is we can look at the Beatitudes and say, oh, it's a checklist. Okay, so if I want to be blessed, I need to be poor in spirit. Okay, check. I got to mourn. All right, what am I sad about? All right, I have to be meek. So I just got to restrain myself. I got a hunger and thirst, and we're, we're taking this checkbox. Does Jesus ever give a checklist or a formula? No, that's not the way he works. He speaks specifically to the people that he is talking to. So when that person comes up in Scripture and Jesus says, go and sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me, that's not a command for every single one of us to follow. That was looking at that man and saying, your God is your possession. So if you really want to follow me, you got to sell all that stuff, give it to the poor and follow me. But what some people want to do is they want a checklist. Just tell me what I got to do. Let me check it off. And then I can, you know, go on my merry way. The kingdom of God is not a checklist. It's a relationship. 
And so when we look at the Beatitudes like I did earlier in the prep as a checklist, I'm totally off base. And when I look back at Matthew chapter 4, I realize, no, what he's doing is he's speaking something revolutionary to the people that are listening to him. John chapter 9, very familiar verse, says this, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So at this time, if you had any of these things in the list of Matthew chapter 4, you were considered cursed. Demon possession, paralysis, if you couldn't see, if you couldn't hear, um, if you suffered with disease or pain or sickness, at this time, they would look at you and say, this is because you were cursed in some way, either something that you did or your parents did. And Jesus is looking, at, and so all of their lives, they're looked at as curse. And they believe, well, this must be something that I did. And that's why I'm like this. And they were just reserved to their fate. And then Jesus gives this revolutionary teaching and says to all of these people that have always been told that you're nothing, you're outcast, you're cursed, you can't change your situation. Jesus looks at these people in this crowd and said, you always have been told you're cursed, but I tell you, you're blessed. It must have blown their mind to hear that. Probably for the first time ever. You're blessed. Basically, what he's doing is opening up wide the doors to heaven. And he's saying, blessing isn't about what you have. It's about having Jesus. And I do believe, so he's speaking to a crowd, but I do believe it's something that we need to hear today. That we have this loving, wide-open God that says, no matter your circumstance, no matter your struggle, no matter your pain, no matter your suffering, whatever you're going through, it's not your circumstances in life that say whether you're blessed or cursed. It's whether or not you have me in your life. I am the blessing. So these people were completely empty, had nothing, nothing to hold on to, but they had Jesus. And so he could pronounce blessing on them. And I think for me, you know, this is something that I need to hear. And I think this is something as a society and as a church that we need to hear. Because secular culture, in a way, has robbed this word blessing to mean provision what you have, the material. And so you can look at somebody with a healthy family, a good marriage, a nice home, and say, why is God blessing them, but he's not blessing me? And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about the haves and the have-nots. It's about who has me. That's who's blessed. Because once you have me, you have everything. So you can go through a struggle. You can go through a difficult time. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. But at the same time, you can have all of the material and have Jesus and you have everything. So it's not that we need to get rid of all of this and become destitute and poor and mourning. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying whatever your circumstance, like what Paul says, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or living in want, 
No matter our circumstance, if we have Jesus, we are blessed. These people hungered and thirsted. And I think that's why he goes right into that. If you hunger and you thirst for these things, you will be filled. C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus fills us up. So then he shifts. The Beatitudes 1, 2, 3, and 4, there's this emptiness and longing. Then he goes to, okay, I will fill you up. Then he goes into these outward expressions of what one through four do for you. And he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So again, speaking to the crowd, spiritually bankrupt. Jesus extends mercy and says, you are blessed. The kingdom is open. You got to imagine that that did something dramatic to their lives. And the mercy that God showed towards them, they can't help but showed towards others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus doesn't just call them to recognize their sin and then just stay in it. He calls them to purity. John chapter 8, with the woman caught in adultery, it says this, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Now, he doesn't just leave it there. Now, go and keep sinning. It's good. You're covered. doesn't matter. No, it says right after that, go now and leave your life of sin. So it, it's not enough just to be like, woe is me, and then just wallow in it. Jesus wants to see transformation, purity of heart, fixing our eyes on Jesus. John Piper And just to tell you, I read every single one of his sermons about the Beatitudes. um, And that's what made me realize if John Piper needs like eight weeks to do it, (laughs) 30 minutes for me is is totally not enough. John Piper said this in one of his sermons, A pure heart is a heart that has nothing to do with falsehood. It is painstakingly truthful and free from deceitfulness. Deceit is what you do When you will two things, not one thing. You will to do one thing, and you will that people think you are doing another. That's confusing. I'll read it again. You will to do one thing, but you make people think you're actually trying to do another thing. You will will feel one thing, and you will, uh, sorry, you will to feel one thing, and you will that people think you are feeling another. That is impurity of heart. Purity of heart is to will one thing, namely to seek the face of the Lord. And then the final one there, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The Bible, especially in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly saying that those that are forgiven of much, love much. Those that recognize what Jesus has done for them overflow 
with the qualities of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit. So blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. These people, this crowd, had made peace with God through Christ. And because of that, then they should want to and be compelled to go out and make peace with those around them. The Bible says, and I know a lot of us don't take this to heart, is as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. How many of us would have looked at this crowd as the outcasts? How many of us have people in our lives that seem beyond hope, that are difficult, they're hard to be around, they struggle with addiction, their life always just seems to be a mess and we write them off. We're not at peace with them. When you look at this crowd and you realize that Jesus is opening up wide the doors to heaven, it should do something to us to say, Jesus cares deeply for the brokenhearted, for the hurting, for the struggling, for the depressed, for the poor. Jesus cares deeply for them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now the most difficult part of it all, because we like to be comfortable, is verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, he starts with the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he ends with it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I, I believe there's two reasons for this at the end of the Beatitudes. One is because when you have come in contact with Jesus, it's hard not to have joy. And joy in the Lord to everybody around you is going to be one of two things, offensive or attractive. If somebody's going around just humdrum and hating life and hating their lot in life, and you come around and the joy of the Lord is my strength, they're going to be like, get away from me. I have friends in my life, and I was the same way before I became a believer. When I was struggling, I wanted to be as far away from Christians as possible. When I was doing good, yeah, I'll be around them. I'm doing good. The joy of the Lord is offensive. The cross is offensive. It says in, I believe, Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The cross is foolishness. How can you believe in a God that lets the world be the way it is? I don't want to believe in that God. You're an idiot for believing in that God. For some people, it's attractive. I want what that person has. For other people, it's offensive. How can you be joyful in the midst of so much pain around you? How can you believe in this ancient book that has no relevancy for today? How can you believe in a God that allowed the Holocaust to happen? How, 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 how? And that's a whole other sermon that we're not going to get into. And then another reason I believe um, that there's persecution is because the world doesn't easily forgive past wrongs. Jesus does. You confess your sins 
and they're washed away. You're cleansed, you're clean. But the world, they're going to remember what you did. They're going to remember who you were. You slip up once, but do 10 things right, they're going to remember the one time you slipped up, and they're not going to trust you. And we're supposed to walk around justified before God. And so, yeah, our lives are messed up. We mess up all the time, but then what I think we do is then we hide that from the world. Because if I was like that woman coming before Jesus and weeping at his feet because of my sin, imagine how the world would look at you if you acted that way. The Pharisees, look how they responded saying, if Jesus only knew who this woman was, he would kick her out. Or that man standing far off and beating his chest and saying, woe is me, a sinner. When we start to act this way and the, 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 the walls come down and we say, you know what, this is who I am. This is where I mess up. This is where I fall short. I am far from perfect. My Facebook profile does not reflect my life. I, had, I made my kids cry to get that picture of them looking like they're doing something cute. Or they did something cute an hour ago and I recreated it once they were out of time out an hour later for not getting a good photo an hour earlier. There you go. I just admitted to all of you some of my Facebook photos. But if we just would put the walls down and say, this is who I am. These people, they had no reputation to hang on to, the people in the crowd. They were already looked down upon, outcast, despised, forgotten, considered cursed. Then you had the Pharisees and the religious elite that maybe in their heart there was so much going wrong, but to the outside world, everything was right. And Jesus is just saying here, these people, the poor of spirit, the mourning, the meek, they are blessed and theirs is the kingdom of heaven because they have nothing left in this life to hold on to but me. That's why they're blessed. How many of us, myself included, will often put on a show. Because if we don't, persecution will come. We often don't want to admit our failings and our insecurities and our shortcomings. Because if people found that out, what would happen? When we live this way, full of mercy, full of peace, pure of heart, humble, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, meek, mourning, When we live this way, we're basically saying to the world, I don't really care what you think about me. This is who I am. All I care about is the cross. And Jesus looks at us and says, you are blessed. Because you're realizing you have nothing to hang on to. It's a straw man. It's a house built on sand. Build your house on me, the rock. But if you do, be careful because it's not easy. So blessing is not about what we have. It's about who we have in Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we begin to recognize our spiritual poverty. We mourn over our sin. We become meek and stop desiring to prove ourselves. We hunger and thirst for what Jesus has to offer. And then we become people of mercy purity, and peace. And when we stand firm in that, be ready because persecution will come. Because you can't have one foot in the Bible and one foot in the world.
Jesus says you have to choose. Yet we need to love the world and be in the world, but not of the world. And so we stake our claim. And when we do, we know that the world and the kingdom, they don't mesh and there will be conflict. But when we're standing firm in him, we're ready for it. And I had a quote that I um, got rid of. There's a lot of stuff that I deleted in this sermon and uh, worked around. But one of the quotes was, uh, it was of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer was German and he fled. And if you know his history better than I do, I'm sorry if any of this is not completely accurate. But Bonhoeffer was German and he fled to the United States during World War II. And while he was in the States, he realized that he was just hiding and, and escaping the things that were happening to his people. So he went back, ended up in a concentration camp. And days before that concentration camp was liberated, he was killed. And the camp doctor, it says, looked at Bonhoeffer as he walked up to meet his death. And he said, in every single person that he saw approaching death, he never saw somebody so calm, so composed, and so confident in the Lord. Because what Bonhoeffer realized was that this world has nothing compared to what the kingdom has to offer. And he could confidently, and that is the ultimate form of persecution. And he was confidently able to walk into it and say, you know what? I chose to follow Christ and Christ met this fate and so will I. So I hope um, you go, you dig into this passage. There is so much wealth and depth um, in that passage that we just, we just don't have time for. Um, but I hope that you go home and just meditate on that passage and just start to dig in and say, Lord, show me what it means to be blessed. Lord, we thank you um, for this morning. Thank you for this passage. Um, I pray that something was communicated. Um, I know I'm going to go and continue to look into this passage, um, discover the gems and the depth that it holds. And reading this just makes me blown away by the complexity of the Bible. No other writing in human history would we be able to pull out so much from a paragraph worth of words. Your word is so rich and so deep and so life-changing. It's water to our soul. Lord, and we thank you for it. Lord, and uh, you know, as, as we know, your word is living and active. And hopefully this morning, the Beatitudes spoke to us in some way. But we know that if we come back to it again, it'll speak to us in another way. And then another way. And then another way. Lord, that's the beauty of your word. It's, um, it's speaking to each one of us individually. And then again, later down the road, it can speak to us again. Um, so Lord, we thank you for it. And I pray this morning as we walk out these doors... We won't look at what we have and feel blessed, Lord, but we'll look at you and feel blessed. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. There's not a closing song, and I'm not going to sing one, but I will just say, have a blessed Sunday.